Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I know what you're thinking, how to be dry, that would sell tonight, but how to be right, maybe, maybe less so. Um, this book in many ways is the, is the end of my story. It was conceived as a, an attempt to diffuse some rather big problems in the world a couple of years ago. It was designed to make everybody wise up to the absurdity of Brexit and um, also properly reject the moral depravity of Donald Trump, so go me. Let me, uh, let me tell you with how, how I first became a radio phone-in host, because it's a very odd thing to end up doing for a living. I, I, I was largely unemployed and I had a massive tax bill. And I, I was in the ITN building on Gray's Inn Road, and um, somebody didn't turn up for this weird radio station in the basement that I'd never heard of. So I, I got, have you ever had a go at radio? Would you like to do this? Um, so I did, uh, and, and I paid my tax bill, and then it relaunched the following January. And they gave me a slot at 10 o'clock at night on, on a Sunday in a slot that had never had a phone-in element to it before. So I, I didn't really know what to expect. So I went on air at 10 p.m., laid out my stall, the things that I wanted to talk about. And by about 10 past 10, I, I was beginning to think that possibly the phones were supposed to have rung by now. Uh, and then we went to the travel. <laughs> And then at about 25 past 10, I just said pretty much all the same things again in a slightly different order. And still the phones hadn't rung. And this is lonely. I, I mean, it's really, really lonely. I'd never done it before in that context, in that slot. And the switchboard in front of you is a big screen with 10 little oblongs on it. And every time one oblong starts flashing, it means there's, there's a phone line coming into the studio. By 10.45 during another travel break, I rang it myself to make sure it was working. At this point, I'm thinking, maybe this isn't the big sparkling career change that you've been um, hoping for. 10.47, just as we got back from the break, it flashes up, and, and I, I oh, thank God for that, and I recognize the number. It's, it's younger listeners, younger members of the audience tonight may need a little explainer of what a landline is, but it was my... It was my home phone number on the screen, and my blessed wife had obviously decided she could bear it no longer. The sound of me slowly dying live on the radio. And, you know, we didn't have a family at the time, but, but we had a mortgage. <laughs> she, had a, she had skin in the game, you know. <laughs> so she comes on and, and plays the game for a little bit, and, and you just, that's what you think. You think, if I can break the seal, we'll be away. And then another number comes out. I think, good God, I know that number as well. And it, it, it was my old friend Luke, who, who lived, lived as an actor. That's why I recognized the number. I had the 727 dialing code from Notting Hill Gate. And I thought, oh God, is anyone going to ring me tonight that I don't actually know already? And he came on, being an actor, worried that he'd be recognized, which was impossible, because he'd only been in three adverts at that point in his career. And he didn't have a speaking role in any of them. Um, he decided he'd do it in a Northern Irish accent, just in case. So I'm sitting at one end of the phone, half of me is cacking it, the other half of me is in some sort of weird Kafkaesque comedy dream, and halfway through the conversation with him about Princess Diana and how would you feel if your mum's love life was all over the newspapers, he forgets the Northern Irish accent that he's supposed to be doing, and, um, and concluded the conversation in his, in his uh, you know, rather RP. 
And then the bloody phones rang. So after about 11 o'clock, I finally became a proper phone-in host rather than someone who was getting paid to speak to his wife and his best mate at 10 o'clock at night on, on, on LBC radio. But, but I learned something quite quickly after that, which is something an awful lot of people who do what I do for a living never learn. Um, and it's, it's actually really easy to make the phones ring. It's really, really easy to make the phones ring. All you do, for example, is say, is there anybody old out there feeling poorly? 03456060973. And the phones will ring off the hook. Or is there anybody who's ever got a parking ticket that they're really unhappy about? And boom! If only I'd known this on that distant Sunday night. Or, of course, um, ooh, immigration. It's a bit awful, isn't it? 03456060973. Um, which, of course, is a, is, a, is a business model that's still working for plenty of people who I shall obviously not name tonight, um, Nigel. But the, uh, but the breakthrough for me, actually, came, came some years later when we were talking about immigration. And I wouldn't say I was bored exactly, but I'd never intended to be a radio phone-in host. And it, it, and it still had a reputation as being something of a, of a maypole for, for, for racist taxi drivers or, or very angry, incoherent people, or, you know, God bless them, old people with a malady who would um, still ring in, actually, whether they were invited to or not. And, and I, I knew somewhere inside that I wanted to do it differently, but, but I didn't know how, and I, I wasn't quite pompous or, or, or conceited enough to think that I might come up with the answer. The beauty of any live experience, this one included, is the absolute unpredictability of it. It's, it's the fact that you don't know what's going to come up next. The reason why I still love going to work every morning is because I genuinely don't know what is going to happen or, or who, who I'm going to encounter. And there was a bloke on the phone called John in, in Hounslow, and we were having one of the usual conversations about... Uh, it, was, it was specifically about immigration. And John became about the seven millionth person to tell me in the course of, of this career that, that you can't say what you want in this country about immigration without being called a racist. And I, I just thought, I, as I said, I, I want to do things differently. So I, I had a little think. And I just said, go on then. Say it. I, I promise that I won't call you a racist. And... I, I, there's a slight danger, isn't there, when, when you've told a story two or three times that it becomes mythologized in your own mind. It becomes sort of part of your internal legend rather than actually an accurate memory. But, but the pause is what I remember because he'd never expected this to happen before. And if you think about this in the context of everything that's happened subsequently in politics on, on both sides of the Atlantic, it still isn't happening. People are still free to make these sweeping statements or to employ these actually hollow slogans, whether it's make America great again or um, control our, our borders, and that they're never asked to actually expand upon it. Part of the problem that, that I explore in the book is this notion of false equivalence, whereby somewhere in the last 20 years, and I don't even pretend to know why, we've started treating Isaac Asimov predicted this, a science fiction writer, that we started treating your false opinion with the same weight and authority as my evidence-based knowledge. The most obvious examples of it are climate change and the MMR vaccine, where looking back 
inviting people into the studio to argue with science probably wasn't the best idea that the BBC or, or any other media organization ever had. It's, it's as if, 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 we were, if we were a few hundred years ago, when I was presenting Newsnight, and one of the reasons why I couldn't continue presenting Newsnight, well, I'll tell you exactly why I couldn't continue presenting Newsnight. I was there one night talking about the WTO with Pascal Lamy, the former director general of the WTO, and a woman called Andrea Ledsom. And, and I had... I had one of those out-of-body experiences where I thought, why am I asking anybody except the Director General, formerly, of the World Trade Organization about the World Trade Organization? Why on earth, how on earth, have I ended up in a swivel chair going, thank you very much, former Director General of the World Trade Organization, and now, Andrew Ledson, why don't you tell me about the World Trade Organization? And I, I thought, I can't, I, this just isn't, isn't normal. So a few hundred years previously, I, I'd have been introducing Galileo Galilei to talk to you about his theory of, of heliocentrism and how he'd used his telescope and Copernicus's um, charts and his entire study of the heavens to, to prove that the, uh, that the Earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. And I'd go like this. I'd have to go, thank you very much, Galileo Galilei. And here's Nigello Lorsini, who's never, never been near a telescope in his bloody life, but he's written a book about why Galileo is wrong, and I now have to treat him with exactly the same authority and time as I do Galileo. So, so I'm back with John in Hounslow, and, and there's this wonderful pause, because he, he's never been invited to say what he wants to say about immigration before, with a promise that he wouldn't be called a racist. All right then, James. Hounslow's full of Pakistanis and they all smell. Okay, I told you, with live radio, you never know what's going to happen next. So what do I do now? Well, I get angry with him, would be my traditional response. But that's not going to work, or I'd call him a racist, but I can't do that, because I promised that I wouldn't. What do they, what do they smell of, John? Another massive pause. And obviously, not unlike being on stage in front of a few hundred people, the length of the pause from where you are is a lot shorter than the length of the pause from where I am. But there's a long, long pause. He says, Curry, James. Where do I go with this? Well, do you like curry, John? Yes, James, goodbye. And, and from that little acorn grew an approach to presenting phone-in radio that in itself led, led to a book about actually treating people with respect to the degree, and by the way, this is a work in progress, but, but for me, the oddest thing is to, to treat people as if they have the intelligence to explain themselves, to treat people with the respect enough respect to presume that they will be able to tell you the meanings of the words that they use. And by doing this, you somehow end up getting cast, hang on, I'll, I'll get this right, as an epitome of a smug, sanctimonious, condescending, obsessively, politically correct, champagne socialist, public schoolboy Ramona. That's the sun. I don't like champagne. Otherwise, that's, that's fair enough. But, but what, what I've done since is ask people who say that all Muslims should apologize for terrorism um, to explain why. 
Because as soon as you explore the logic of that position, then uh, as a white radio presenter, I should be apologizing for Jimmy Savile or, 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 or for all, all white pedophiles. I mean, you point this out to people, they don't realize it immediately, but eventually, I think, and obviously Brexit and Trump hasn't gone too well, as I mentioned at the beginning, but this idea of, of we need to start pushing back against unexamined words and unexamined slogans, against positions that have been introduced into public discourse, despite the fact that the people using these phrases, using these slogans, are never asked what they mean. Control our money, our borders, and our laws. There's, there's, there's one chapter on Brexit. There's a chapter on Islam and Islamism. There's a chapter on political correctness. All of the sort of hardy totems of, of, of modern discourse, LGBT, feminism, nanny states, classical liberals, the age gap, Trump, all of these things have been su subject over the last few years to never moving out of first gear conversationally. I say we can't control our money, our borders, and our laws. No one ever says, whether it's in a BBC studio or whether it's in the pub, no one ever says, what do you mean by control? What do you mean by money? What do you mean by borders? Had a call this week, which obviously isn't in the book. It's nearly two years old. Had a call this week talking about how we voted against Marxism when we introduced Boris Johnson to 10 Downing Street. And the call just begins to trail off. I say, what, what do you think Marxism means? hasn't got a clue, but he's read it. And, and again, it's not his fault he doesn't know. It's his fault that he then starts using phrases like cultural Marxism and neo-Marxism. So I'm sitting there asking him to explain the difference between the three versions of Marxism when he doesn't even know what the word Marxism means. So the challenge that I've got now is, is to find a way of helping public discourse improve without sounding like I'm calling everybody else stupid. Um, and that's going to be the subject of my next book. Thanks ever so much for coming along tonight. <laughs>